0: Welcome to Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. Our guest today has been called the world's first full-time percussion soloist. She's won a Grammy. She's had a movie made about her. And in 1993, she was awarded the Office of the British Empire. Oh, and she designs jewelry, too. Dame Evelyn Glennie, thank you so much for coming in today.
1: Pleasure. Thank you.
0: And welcome to Indiana University and Bloomington. Good to have you.
1: (laughs) And it certainly is blooming here. It's absolutely gorgeous.
0: Yeah, early spring. It's it's beautiful. It's gorgeous in Bloomington. So you've been around the United States before this. Uh, You were in, let's see, you were in Iowa, Maine, Washington. Before that, you were in the UK. You were in Italy and Hungary. All over the place. Your schedule's... It's pretty busy. It is
1: busy, you know, and, uh, But having said that, you can't really take anything for granted, because you never quite know how a season is going to pan out nowadays. Um, It used to be long ago where you pretty much knew what you were going to do in the next two to three years, and it may have been that the performances related to the recordings that you made, because there was such a thing as a recording contract and a a long-term career building contract, but of course that's all changed. So a lot of the dates that come in are very much last minute, so it's It's really uh, more of a challenge to work out how the season is actually going to pan out. So, you know, I have been very lucky this season to, I suppose, spend more time in Europe, actually, than in the U.S. This is the the least amount of time um, that I'll be spending in the U.S. for for 2010. It's very, very unusual. Um, But it has opened up the possibilities to visit the Far East and to explore more of mainland Europe.
0: From here you're doing master classes at Indiana University then you're going to Buffalo to premiere a new piece tell me a little bit about that
1: Well you know I've been a great fan of um Eric Kawasin's music and uh he's written some fabulous pieces including a marimba concerto um and as you and I were talking earlier you mentioned an oboe concerto and this new piece which I'll be playing with the Buffalo Philharmonic conducted by Joanne Folletta, is a piece that's based on Robbie Byrne's poetry. And uh, so it's very much close to home. It has a very Celtic feel, Celtic melodies, Celtic rhythms, and just, you know, this great line uh, that he's managed to... Uh, inject through percussion instruments, which of course can be quite angular actually. So it's a kind of piece that I feel percussion really needs, the, the melodic legato-ness, as it were, for us to explore. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, giving a premiere is always a, a scary experience, to be honest. Um, but hopefully I feel this piece may gain momentum and, and have a lot more performances.
0: This is a premiere and you're doing master classes here. You've done other performances last month and then earlier in the year. How do you stay strong as a musician? How do you keep your practicing up? How do you learn new pieces as you're on the road traveling so much?
1: Well, that really is the challenge because you can't easily move a set of timpani or a marimba or, or a set of drums or something into a, a hotel room. You know, a lot of the preparation has to be done, obviously, beforehand. So it could be that you're dealing with music uh, a few months ahead with a brand new piece of music. I ask for it to be delivered six months ahead. I have to say that rarely happens. <laughs> you know, composers, you, you, you know, they can be your, your uh, best friend or your worst enemy really you know depending on on when that music is is delivered but nevertheless a lot of the preparation is done literally silently that is by looking at the, the the music looking at the score as you're on a plane or waiting at a terminal or something like that it's just one of those things whereby you have to have the confidence in yourself to know that Physically, you can deal with the music, but it goes far deeper than that, so a lot of the thinking process is about the musical direction you know the actual interpretation you know I think that as as we try to translate something that 's more the mechanics of of playing the instrument, but the interpretation is something that you can deal with um, as you're you're uh, on a train or a plane um, but nevertheless, you know any time I can get with an instrument is is pretty voluble um, and quite precious Um, and that's just the challenge that percussionists have, just the logistical aspect
0: And it's also, these aren't Your instruments, these are instruments that the orchestra has that they're bringing in for you or instruments that you pick up at schools like Indiana University. Uh, That's something that pianists struggle with, too, is that I guess they're not really sure what they're going to sit down at to play.
1: I think that's very true. And I mean, on this tour, I've had different makes of marimbas right across the board. And I think probably... Unlike pianos, you know something like a marimba vibraphone can vary in height, it can vary in the width of bars and the uh width between the bars and one thing or another. so it is pretty crucial to to you know use that time to get used to a particular instrument and and not panic about it either <laughs> you, you know knowing that you will be able to handle a situation, but it is actually being pretty protective of the time that you have and and uh, not allow that to be eaten in by by doing other things or being distracted by other things, so the focus is is absolutely crucial. so if you have twenty minutes with an instrument, then truly concentrate for those. 20 minutes, you know, and, and make good use of that time. So the idea of, um, you know, having a name, having a, a, a focus and, and a direction uh, for the time that you're with the equipment is absolutely important. It's very crucial, indeed.
0: Yeah. This is the in concerto that you'll be playing with the Buffalo Symphony coming up mm-hmm. after you leave us here in Bloomington. Mm. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your journey as a musician. So way back, how did you get started in music?
1: Well, you know, I was brought up in a farming community in the northeast of Scotland, and it was a very remote community. Um, each person knew the other, and uh, it was in the days whereby you could leave your 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 doors open, your cars unlocked. You could let the kids out and and really travel for miles on their bicycles, or let them walk out, and and there was no fear basically. So it meant really that um, the the whole play aspect had a different feel about it and the trust level as well was, was very much heightened between the, the parents and the, the children and the, the neighbours and, and their children and therefore the exchange of experiences was, was quite dramatic, actually. And this spilled over to the music making as well. And what really happened was that whenever we had social gatherings, you know, if we had auntie so-and-so come and visit or um, or neighbors come and visit, it always ended up with a sing-song or, you know, people getting the the accordion out or the fiddle out or the kids playing the piano or whatever it may be. That was just part of life, really. It was It was completely normal. And of course, all the music was Scottish traditional music. And so it wasn't about reading the music. It was about uh, you know, transferring that music from person to person. So a lot of the music making was done by ear. And when I went to primary school from the age of five until 11, we had a general music teacher come in once a week so that all the kids could learn how to read music by the time they left that school, all of us. It was just the norm. And when we went to secondary school from the age of 11, 12 to 16, 17, 18, depending on on how uh, far you wanted to go, music continued. Every child had the opportunity to learn a musical instrument free of charge through the school system. Perfectly normal. So a huge body of the youngsters were playing instruments, you know, even if their emphasis may have been in science or sports or languages or uh, drama or whatever it may be, a large proportion of the kids played instruments. So nearly every school had a school orchestra, a band, a concert band, a choir, and all sorts of things like that. And so when I reached the age of 12, or by the time I, I I was 12 years old, I had already been playing the piano for a number of years. Um, since the age of eight, I had played the clarinet for one year and I was keen to try something else. And I was hugely inspired by seeing the school orchestra play as a new pupil at the school. And I looked around the orchestra and I saw percussion. I thought, oh, well, maybe I could give that a go. Um, there was an excellent peripatetic teacher there already. And a lot of the percussion teachers actually at the schools were often self-taught drummers. And uh, But this particular teacher came through the army system and he was just a, a super musician, you know, who happened to teach percussion. And uh, he really gave us... A, a terrific grounding on tuned percussion. And bear in mind, we only had a three-octave xylophone. But it isn't really the fancy tools that you have. It's what you can do with those tools. He gave us a great grounding on snare drum, on drum set, and on the auxiliary instruments. And then we had two hand-tuned timpani And again, this was just the basics on timpani. So he did not allow anyone to specialise. So the basics on all of those instruments were very much addressed. Um, We did not have... Any tutor books or study books for percussion, or any solo pieces for percussion, everything was generated from the violin repertoire, piano repertoire, flute repertoire, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and all the exercises and improvisations that we did stemmed from those types of, of pieces. So all the time we were dealing with pieces of music we all had the opportunity to play little solos at the school concerts and the community concerts and, and all sorts of settings like that. And this kind of snowballed to taking part in national orchestras to uh, or regional then national orchestras and then international events. And, you know, by the time I left school at the age of 16 and started auditioning for music, colleges and institutions, I, I assumed the world was full of solo percussionists <laughs> because it was so normal for us to play little solos, mm-hmm. you know. So this whole mindset was was pretty unbelievable, actually, because you just assumed everything was was out there already. And when I became a full-time student in London, I discovered that well, actually, where is the repertoire? Where are the solo players? I don't see any of them. Why aren't I getting this at the the institution? And it was a complete flip of the coin that was happening, you know. And then I very, very quickly realized, my God, you know, if I want to do this and sustain any kind of reasonable career, I had to very quickly get some repertoire written, uh, get together with the, the composers and construct my own kind of programs and and really get percussion out there to the general public. Um, so that was really the main challenge.
0: Yeah, you were very much a trailblazer in this. To say that you were the first full-time percussionist, you you sort of started this on your own. So it was really working with composers to get pieces written. And then how else did you get yourself out there to let people know Hey, I'm here, hire me. Well, you know...
1: It was in the days whereby, as a as a student at somewhere like the Royal Academy of Music, it was quite difficult to play outside of the academy. Um, You we almost had to tell little white lies, you know, to say oh, not feeling well today, you know. And (laughs) meanwhile, you were off somewhere playing. But it was the only way I could really get that experience. I was fortunate because I had a couple of television documentaries, profile documentaries made, and that helped. But nevertheless, um, I really, as far as the repertoire was concerned, I basically bought um, the British Music Yearbook. And there it lists, you know, so many composers and venues and all sorts of things. So I basically wrote to about 200 composers asking if they would write pieces of music. What I hadn't realized was that they needed to be paid. (laughs) So... Many of them wrote back, actually. And this was in the days when, you know, you had to almost handwrite your letters or, or get a typewriter, you know, and do this. So... um I basically wrote a number of letters, received a number of replies, some of them saying, ooh, actually intriguing, yes, I'll write a two-, three-, four-minute piece. Um, other people said, yes, and this is my commission fee, and, and others simply declined. So uh, I ended up, actually, with a whole body of short pieces that were really useful for radio performances, for uh, workshops, for little... Uh, demonstrations for children, little encore pieces, um, pieces that I could spice a recital with. And this was the beginning, really, just the first step of working with the composers and seeing how this whole process works, actually. And uh, and, and gradually, you know, it stemmed to larger scale pieces and, and more in-depth types of projects and uh, more prominent performances. I gave a lot of concerts to corporate companies you know so after dinner type of performances and of course to have a percussionist was completely unusual for them they would normally have a singer possibly a violinist possibly a pianist but some of them dared to have you know this kind of percussion player and it was fantastic because of course it was so unusual and it was a fantastic platform for me to just experiment with the repertoire to get to know a lot of the corporate people actually (laughs) so it was delving into a whole world that actually now I'm sort of drawn back into through the motivational speaking. So it's, it's, it's almost come full circle in a way, but, yeah, it's been a pretty interesting journey.
0: And you're expanding the repertoire now by writing music yourself. You're a composer, and as you said, you're a motivational speaker too. So well, uh, tell me a little bit about the composing.
1: Well, I, I see myself as a composer with a little C as far as the, the concert platform is concerned. But most of my compositions are to do with the media. By that I mean television, radio, writing for films, that type of thing. So it's all related to uh, something that's visual. So at the moment, I'm working on a a low-budget film called Golf in the Kingdom, which is an American film, and it's about the psychology of of golf playing, uh, based in Scotland. So what they're looking for are very much organic sounds, you know, and sounds that uh, whereby you see movement and you relate that to sound. So, of course, they're very interested in in my whole journey um, of creating sound. You know, that type of composition is very different to the concert platform. And it's fantastic because I can then use a lot of the the sounds that I have available from the instrument collection at home. And, and that's pretty large. So, you know, I'm able to use things that, that I perhaps wouldn't ordinarily use on the concert platform. So um, it's for me, it's an umbrella um and I mean the world word music is such a you know, it's it's huge. Um so this is a an avenue as it were that um that I very much like to explore.
0: Well this is a perfect time to play one of the pieces that you, you wrote. You wrote Thunder Caves an improvisation for percussion. So uh, tell me a little bit about this. How, how do you write out an improvisation, first of all?
1: <laughs> well, you don't write it out, basically. Um, the whole idea of Thunder Caves, and, and it's from a, a CD called Shadow Behind the Iron Sun. It's a completely improvised CD. And what I really wanted to do, having made a number of CDs uh, featuring other people's music, there was one of the early CDs where I had Uh, put little sorbets or improvised sorbets really of just a few seconds or a minute or a couple of minutes and I wanted to extend that idea and make a whole improvised CD and the concept was very very simple indeed just simply fill the studio with many many different types of instruments and objects and I would literally play what I felt at that moment, so I simply asked the engineer to keep the mics on, and that was it. You know, is just a very simple process. So that's exactly what I did. But I wanted it to be produced much more in a pop way, and not a classical CD. So I got a, a wonderful producer in, Michael Brower, who had never even seen a marimba before, and indeed many of the objects that were in the studio. We had never met before, and we had no idea whether the chemistry would work or what would happen. As it happened, it was just a fantastic collaboration, one of those collaborations that almost happened once in a lifetime, to be honest. By the end of it, we were like brother and sister, really. We got on so well. And... He completely understood where I was coming from. We had to feed, each day we had to feed uh, what we were doing down the phone line to BMG, you know, in New York, so that they they could at least see that we were doing something. Yeah. And uh, because this whole idea of creating something improvised was so alien to them, because normally they were used to featuring a composer or something, or a, an actual performer playing written music so that they knew exactly what they were going to get. And so this is what happened, and it was a fantastic experience and a very liberating experience as well. And from that, um, it gave me the confidence to give completely improvised concerts, mainly in collaboration with other people. And the type of collaboration that I've really worked on is with Fred Frith, um, the the fantastic guitarist. And uh, and so we've, you know, I think our our next concert is in England, uh, but we've performed all over the world together, really.
0: Oh, it's fantastic. Mm. Let's take a listen. This is Thunder Caves. Music written there by Evelyn Glennie, that was Thunder Caves, Improvisation for Percussion. Uh, you were performing there with David Motion, so collaborating with him on that performance. Mm. And that entire CD, as you said, Shadow Behind the Iron Sun, uh, was an entirely improvised mm. CD. So we have another selection coming up later in the hour that's from a piece that was written for you. So that's an Excellent. exciting new thing to talk about.
2: Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business Internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: For listeners who don't know, you've been profoundly deaf since the age of 12, and so uh, it might be strange for some people to think this world-famous professional musician can't hear. So let's talk about that a little bit. When did you start losing your hearing and how did that affect you as a young woman?
1: Well, basically I began losing my hearing from the age of eight. This was a very slow process and I was having real problems with my ears before that, but we didn't obviously realize that to lose your hearing you know, at such a a young age was, was actually happening. However, it was becoming a problem. Schoolwork was being affected. Conversation was being affected. Music at that time from about the age of eight to 12 was not so affected because I was still very much dealing with the mechanics of playing and I was playing the piano. Um, but I was finding that a lot of my time was spent indoors because it was too painful to go outdoors. Um, you know, the wind, the cold weather, that sort of thing was really affecting the ears. So by the time I went to secondary school at the age of 12, I was really struggling, actually, with just basic conversation. I then was fitted out with hearing aids and phonic ears for classroom work so that the teacher, I could basically pick the teacher up as he or she was able to walk around the classroom so that it wasn't really affecting the other pupils. But it was really in the teenage years where... Music was now becoming a, a challenge because I assumed that in order to hear, you needed things to be louder. And what the hearing aids did was, of course, boost the sound, but it didn't give you any clarity. So as a percussion player and as a player playing in the, the school orchestra and being in a school environment, you had an awful lot of different frequencies, different attacks, different dynamics to deal with. And this was hugely tiring, very frustrating indeed. And sometimes when I got home, I'd just take the hearing aids off, throw them on the bed, and be in a world of silence almost. But what I did discover was actually when that happened, all the other senses became razor sharp. And my hearing skills actually also became much more profound. And I was discovering that actually, without feeding the sound through the ear, I was inadvertently feeding the sound through the body. So the body almost became a huge ear. And so everything was being distributed to a a bigger mass, as it were. And so... When I got back to school, my percussion teacher, who was extremely open-minded and patient, you know, discovered that actually when I was wearing the hearing aids, I was becoming extremely frustrated and, and not angry as such, but just simply not, it wasn't me, you know, things were coming through in my personality that actually weren't to do with me. And, I found that I wasn't really enjoying what I was doing and I was banging everything, you know, I was just banging everything to to, to to be heard, you know, for me to hear myself. And I knew that this wasn't what was inside of me as a musician. So the two were really fighting each other. But then when I was taking the hearing aids off, I became much more sensitive towards the, the sense of touch, really, mm-hmm. Because again, I was feeling everything through, through the body. And so together we were beginning to feel the differences between one pitch and another pitch, one interval and another interval, and really honing in on that. So in my mid-teens, I was, whenever I was playing, it was usually without the hearing aids, but all other times the hearing aids were, were in. And this was just a, a, a revelation, really. And even to this day, you know, you can't say, well, this is how you hear, because every instrument is different, every hall is different, every piece of music is different, every mallet you use is different, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But it was a, a a kind of you could see the light at the end of the tunnel where the enjoyment of music and getting back on that journey of curiosity and discovery happened again. And the whole idea of sharing music was important. And um there was far less of this self-centeredness where through needing to hear yourself, you know, where you're charging forward without any kind of realization as to what was going on elsewhere, even although you knew that stuff was happening. And, it, you know, it was it was a funny period, really. But it was also I, I found when I was at my happiest, it was when I was playing by myself and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to, to to be a solo player. It was because I could actually be in control of what I was doing myself So it sounds terribly selfish, but, of course, the the big challenges are when you are playing with an orchestra, even in a concerto format. Um, And it's why I I position my instruments at an angle, usually a 90 degree angle to the audience, so that I can see about three quarters of the the orchestra. But the conductor can also see me, and that's equally important because, of course, they still need the experience of of performing with a solo percussionist to know how we breathe and how we strike and, and the different sound colours that we have. And very often conductors will know, you know, th- how to read the rhythm of a percussion part, but they won't necessarily know the actual direction of the sound colour. You know what I mean? Where suddenly you're striking a wood block and the next minute it's a cymbal, the next minute it's a bass drum, the next minute it's, it's a timpani, and so on and so forth. So they'll see the rhythm of all of that, but not necessarily understand the colours. And it's often the colours that can then affect the rhythm and so it's it's a sort of interesting process, really. But the whole aspect has been a, a, a very interesting journey. But it has allowed people to understand that, my God, you know, you don't have to hear through the ear only in order to be a musician. It's a lot more than that, you know. And I think a great example of that, of course, is Beethoven. You know, his greatest music often was written after he began losing his hearing. But, of course, he did not have the mod cons that we have now. And even since I was a youngster, the technology for hearing impaired people has advanced to such an incredible degree. I mean, unbelievable. And for me, I think it's important to explore that, although at my age, I would find it very daunting to change my situation so dramatically where I wouldn't be sure whether I'd actually hear better, considering my whole profession is about sound. And I'm not sure if I can take that step.
0: Well, and uh, people have seen you perform without your shoes. There are videos of this where you take your shoes off so that you perform barefoot and you can feel the music better throughout your entire body. You're talking about hearing with your body. Explain that a little bit. For someone who, who can hear, I guess we don't necessarily always tap into that. Well, there's probably l- less
1: need for you to tap into that. And of course, you know, we live in a world where you can't escape sound. So you, you're you're hostage to that, whether you like it or not. You know, we're all hostage to that. I think in my situation, you can distribute it better. You can cut something out much more easily and focus on one particular sound. You know, I remember as a full-time student, we, we had one percussion room, can you believe? <laughs> and that was used for teaching and practice otherwise you are out in the corridor and so sometimes you might have had four or five people in this one room not bigger not much bigger than this this the studio area that we're in and so ex we were extremely close together physically all playing completely different things and but this was a an interesting situation because it meant that to play pianissimo for example um meanwhile when, all of this other stuff was going on, you really had to have control of your own concentration, your own focus, your own balance, as it were, your own sense of touch. And that was where the sense of touch really, truly came in and you had to hone in on that. So it was an interesting exercise. And as percussion players, you know, we're used to moving sound we're used to perhaps having an instrument where we have to walk here and there with the sound or we're used to one minute playing a marimba over there the next minute playing a set of drums over here the next minute playing a multi set over in that department And, you know, that's the nature of of sometimes the setups that we have. So we are used to one minute feeling the brass from the violin side and the next minute feeling the brass from the cello side. And that's the way it is. But sometimes we become too comfortable with the, the kind of, a kind of listening direction of the sound. Um, so most violinists sit in the same seat, you know, in the same direction, and that's how they're perceiving the brass or the, the, the basses or the, the clarinets or whatever it is. It's coming all the time from the same uh, direction. They have the same perspective perspective of, of the sound. Percussion players are much more mobile and and, f- and open to that. And for me, that's really crucial because I have, I'm continually dealing with moving sound that's constantly swimming throughout my body, and I have to make sense of that.
0: I'm thinking about the nature of percussion. You have so many instruments that you're responsible for. As you said, it's very physical. You're constantly moving around. I wonder if you can translate this idea of feeling the sound throughout your entire body to a wind instrument, to a string instrument, maybe even to singing. Well, you you
1: can to an extent, but again, it depends on the proximity. It depends on the type of player, the type of music and so on and so forth. So you know, if you are, for, for example, I had the wonderful experience. Uh, premiering a marimba and violin concerto, with orchestra, obviously. And the violinist was right next door to me, standing up, and he was a terrific player as well. And so, you know, we experimented with him being on my right and on my left you know and very often if i possibly can i like to set my instruments up on the cello side of an orchestra because i feel more of the cellos and it's a better range for me to to feel more than the the violins which is quite high and much more difficult for me to to actually hear through the ear as well and uh, and and that really is why I, I, I position myself as far as I possibly can on the cello side. But this was a great example where I could actually hone in on one player, you know, and obviously I knew his part as well. And, you know, how we were set up meant that clearly we could see each other and the whole physicality of playing. So someone can give the the illusion of creating a sound and not actually create the sound, but I will hear it because if if there's movement I'll hear sound and that's a great you know for for me my my world is very visual so you know sound is movement and and that's the way it is so um I will react to that and assume that there is sound you know so i mean the other day uh, you know i had the, the instance of seeing a kettle boil now my kettle at home you can actually see the water Bubble, and you know, a light comes up, and you know when it's boiling. And in this instance, you couldn't really see the kettle, but uh, my friend said, "Well, watch the steam come out, and then it'll make a, a a whistling noise." And so I thought, well, how much steam do I need to see before I know that the the kettle has, has boiled? You know, is it a lot? Is it not a lot? And so on. So again, you know, it's familiarizing yourself with a situation so that you translate that visual element into sound. So I'm not going to depend on the whistle sound, but I will depend on the steam. But I need to know how much steam is going to come out of that kettle. So if it's just a, a kind of little wisp of of, of steam, then for me, that's, that has a certain sound to it. If it's a lot more steam at a certain velocity, that has another sound to it. And it goes on
0: and on and on like that. When you perform with these orchestras, you perform often as a soloist in front of the orchestra. Do you have any desire to go to the back and play in the percussion section as part of the orchestra?
1: No, no. not at all, unless it would be timpani. I, I would love to be a tympanist in an orchestra, but um, I have no desire at all. You know, I realise the, the art of orchestral playing truly is an art, and it's a hugely... Um, I think, stressful situation as well. It's not so much the amount that you have to do, but it truly is choosing those colours, choosing the instruments, and and being completely and utterly at one with, you know, 80, 90, 100 players. And, you know, it truly, truly is something that very often looks easy to do, but actually is not. Um, so I've got a lot of admiration for, for orchestral players, but no, I have absolutely no desire at all um, to do that. So I feel, you know, as far as choosing the kind of uh, career path that I've had, it, I still feel feel right about that.
0: Well, let's take a listen to another piece of music here. You're performing this piece that was written for you. It was written by... Erki Sventur, mm-hmm. I hope I'm getting that yeah, absolutely. close. Absolutely. Okay, Estonian composer. <laughs> yes, yes, Estonian. This is uh, from his Symphony Number no. 4 called Magma. We're going to hear the second movement. Talk about the process of working with him as he wrote this piece for you.
1: Well, he's a very dynamic composer. And I remember performing in Tallinn in Estonia. Uh, and I was playing really one of the most well-known percussion concertos called uh, Veni Veni Emanuel by James McMillan. And Erkis Ventura came along to the performance and he introduced himself. He uh, gave some of his pieces to me that he had already written for percussion. I had a look at those. I was really intrigued by them. And uh, we kept in contact and I asked if he would be interested in writing a concerto. He was very, very interested in that. And so as time went by, he said, you know, I'm just seeing this huge piece of music. And he decided that he would like to write a symphony, but for solo percussion and orchestra, which he called Magma. And it really is, you know, you feel this kind of weight of the piece. It's a huge structure. And uh, I've played it several times now and recorded it. And uh, in fact, the next performance of it is in the US with the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington, D.C. in June. So, you know, I just really like his writing because he has this balance between I mean, he seems to have his own voice obviously, but this balance of uh, tapping into the period when he was growing up, which was the 60s, you know, so he's not frightened to feature a, a drum set within the setup. You know, he has this kind of rhythmic pool, really, that that's very infectious as well, but a whole sound world that takes you into, you know, all the extremes of frequencies and attacks and um, and really gets this terrific sound world from the the orchestra as well. I very, very much like him, and certainly his solo works are are worth delving into.
0: Well, let's take a listen. This is the second movement from Symphony No. 4, Magma, by Erkes Venture. Music by Erkis Ventur. We heard the second movement of this. Uh, it's really a single movement work. Symphony number no. four, called Magma, performed by our guest today on Profiles, Evelyn Glennie. Thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. So you're here at Indiana University to teach, but then after you leave us, uh, what do we have to look forward to on your schedule? What are your upcoming projects? <laughs> <laughs> well, heavens, basically,
1: I finished the the U.S. with, with Eric Ewezen's er- piece, and then uh, I work on this uh, film called Golf in the Kingdom. And so that really has to be completed within the next uh, month and a half. Meanwhile, I have uh, performances to give in Zurich, uh, Switzerland. And uh, I give a lot of recitals with piano. And that's always interesting uh, because they have a very different feel than giving recitals without piano. And obviously the repertoire is different, but you can combine uh, pieces that don't use piano along with the piano pieces. So it's, it's a good combination. And we also head over to... Abu Dhabi as well, and I'm collaborating with a wonderful DJ called DJ Yoda, who's really pushing his boundaries as far as what he does, sound-wise and visually. And uh, you know, a lot of people who sort of reach the age of forty or so, and who have really um, created a strong career doing what they do, are often looking for other things to do, other collaborations, um, other challenges. And uh, and this is a situation that we have you know, where DJ Yoda has, you you know, almost done all he can do within the club scene, and is really eager to express himself through what he does. Um, for example, taking something melodic, you know, his whole world is based on rhythm and, and and driving that energy through people. And But he wants to do this by exploring melody, you know. So we're, we're working together and we have performances in uh, Norway and the, the UK. Um, the performances with Fred Frith continue, of course, and of course they're they 're completely different types of performances. You know our next one is uh, a situation where we 're performing in a fairly modern church in the u k and everybody, the whole audience, can you imagine will be lying down on their backs, you know on cushions, and they 'll literally be looking up at the spectacular ceiling and we will be improvising where some instruments will be on a balcony, some will be down on the floor level. So, you know, this is going to be a really interesting experience for all concerned. And again, it's something just a wee bit different for us to to deal with. Um, I'm also working on a choir and percussion project and getting repertoire up for that. And for the past two, three years or so, I've been in, in the process of commissioning uh, pieces that feature duo concertos, and of course the the commission process is is much more challenging nowadays because of the the, the financial climate that we're all experiencing. Um, but you know, I've already had a an O'born percussion concerto, violin marimba, percussion concerto. Uh, piano and percussion concerto, Christian uh, Lindbergh, the wonderful trombonist, is writing a trombone and percussion concerto. Um, I have William Bolcom writing a voice and percussion concerto, and so on and so forth. So, you know, this is a long term project, of course, you know, and something that I'd like to continue really forevermore, uh, because it can go on and on and on. But, you know, so far, it's 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 progressed pretty well.
0: Oh, there's a lot going on, all all great stuff. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the music climate these days. So it's a little tumultuous. Mm -hmm. We have people, um, orchestras are in some financial troubles. Tuition at music schools, like Indiana University, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. tuition is going up. Some say interest is going down. As someone who has her toes in many different areas of music, not just classical music, but all music, Mm -hmm. how do you see it? Where are we as Western art musicians today? Well, it's a, it's a big
1: question, and I'm not sure if I can really answer that very clearly, um, but I do know we can't take anything for granted. We have always got to reinvent. You know, those are the 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 facts, and that will always have to happen. You know, the excitement that audiences felt and the participation that they felt uh, during the times of Liszt and Paganini, where they were engrossed in, you know, the the technical aspect and the musical aspect. The two went together, really. And uh, but of course, nowadays, you know, our whole social world is different, and our entertainment can happen within the privacy of our own four walls. And uh, there's a huge amount of entertainment to choose from, as well it can be much more an isolated experience you know we're quite happy being entertained on our own you know it isn't such a shared experience anymore and so for people to get out of their their comfy chair and out of their home environment they've really got to make that effort and see something quite special actually so i think as far as the orchestral scene we have to really see each Performance as an event and not just another concert, you know, that's in that subscription series. We've really got to keep reinventing. And I think that we've got a terrific opportunity to get young music directors in who are interested in bringing composers from different backgrounds, you know, people who are dealing with perhaps electronics um, or folk music. Or, I mean, you, you think of the name of Bella Fleck, for example, or Edgar Meyer, who are just fantastic examples of musicians who delve into many different avenues, who collaborate with many different types of people and who can bring this kind of excitement and curiosity and, and kind of you, the audience step on this journey that is... is is. Always oh, memorable. And, uh, you know, you can then program Beethoven or Tchaikovsky or Sibelius or something alongside that. And so that the Beethovens become really exciting again, you know, the, it's, it's when we're, we're, we're kind of being fed too much of the same diet, I think we we have a problem and we're losing people actually. Um, So I think the type of programming and how it's programmed, the the kind of before and after events leading up to that um, is pretty important to address as well. So we've got to feel the vibe of the event as soon as we walk into uh, an environment actually. So it does mean a lot more thought um, and in a way a lot more work as far as visiting people like myself um you know but we're prepared to do that and and we have to do it actually it's getting this balance sorted out
0: the the flip side of this is the music lovers out there people who tend to go to concerts perhaps want their beethoven they want their mozart some people say that new music 21st century 20th century music is a little alienating so what would you say to the people who just aren't interested in that i don't want that i'll stick to the 18th and 19th century music. Thank you very much.
1: Well, you see, our our whole problem has been about categorization. You know, we're determined to use... Classical, even for today's composers, we're determined to categorize everything, thinking it's going to make it easier for people to digest and understand, and and you know get a grip on what they're actually going to see. And of course, it's it's we can't. It's too early to categorize the music that's written today. You know, it hasn't had a chance to breathe yet. It's a little bit like dealing with the senses, and why sometimes you know the frustration has come through in talking about my hearing situation, because you just assume that all sound is is fed through the. Evening. Ear. And it it goes on and on. So if you cover your ears, you can no longer hear. And that's what all deaf people experience. Or you shut your eyes and that's what blind people experience. And so you go to a classical concert. And so you're going to get, you know, 20th century and Beethoven. And that's a classical concert because you see an orchestra there. And it's not quite marrying up. And I think that we, we do. It, it has created problems, actually. Um, but I would like to see much more conversation in a way happen um, with conductors, with composers who are present there, with the musicians themselves, with soloists, really connecting with our audiences, you know, having uh, pretty regular programs in place to get our young folk into these concert halls as well. You know, we see a lot of empty seats in in those halls and, uh, you know, we can fill those up. We really can. You know, it's fantastic when you discover projects that young people might be doing at school that is related to uh, what an orchestra is doing, that's related to a solo But all of this has to be dealt with in advance, you know. And so it's just a little bit more forward thinking, a little bit of planning. We don't need the fancy gadgets. We don't want extra expense as far as that's concerned. We just want better communication.
0: Uh, we're in the year 2010. Where do you see yourself in 2020 as a performer, as a speaker, as a teacher?
1: Actually, I don't know. You know, if you asked me 10 years ago, I'd probably be very clear as to where I would want to be. But now I don't know. And the reason I say that is because I think the world is moving very quickly at this point. I feel that the reinvention um, has to happen on a much more regular basis. And I also feel, though, that uh, whatever happens, things will be simplified, so there are obvious long term things that that I would hope to to still be involved with, whether as a player or not, but would be the commissioning process i'd love to obviously continue with that i'd love to uh you know see a player and see a composer and if i 've already hung the sticks up or something i'd still like to be involved in that process and uh, because I know the value of that and the the It's, you know, the interesting journey that you can really involve yourself with. And, and I would love for, for people to be encouraged by that. Obviously, there's the whole construction of instruments themselves. You know, that's a continual thing, obviously. Um, but I'm at the, the stage where it's important to feed the next generation, where they use what I've done almost as a trampoline for their their own situation so that they can push their boundaries further than than I can. So it really is also dealing with the importance of music and sound therapy. Um, Because the crux, when you really hone in on things, the crux of whether it's domestic challenges or business challenges, it's about listening. It's truly about listening. You know, whether you're dealing with a health service, whether you're dealing with the teaching profession, whether you're dealing with um, an engineering company, it doesn't matter. Um, The crux of what we all do is about listening. And I don't mean what you hear through the ear. It's about listening to each other and giving each other that chance to be heard. Listening is about watching. It's about the the body movements. It's about the patience. It's about, you know, just the teamwork.
0: Well, we've reached the end of our time. Dame Evelyn Glennie, solo percussionist, composer with a lowercase c, <laughs> motivational speaker, jewellery maker, uh, teacher... <laughs> visiting master class presenter at the Jacobs School of Music, Indiana University. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You've been listening to Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business Internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.